Uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in Colossians. As we consider uh, today uh, being our first Lord's Day, as mentioned, of, of a new year, I trust that you had an enjoyable and blessed Christmas season with your family, and that that was centered around Christ, that it was an opportunity to renew your mind in thinking about Christ, about who he is and, and what he is like, what he has done for you, and what that means for your life now, and what it means for your life and your hope for the future. There is nothing in Scripture that tells us that Jesus was born on December 25th. There's, there's nothing that seasonally necessarily draws us to that time. But I think it's appropriate that we are thinking, just as we enter into the season of the new year, to be thinking about Christ and about his incarnation and what he is and what he means to us. It's an opportunity to recalibrate, if you will, on Christ. You know, so many times people are building New Year's resolutions, and that's all fine and, and well. But for us, we want to be centered on Christ and focused on Christ. And that's a good timing, really, if you think about it, to be focused on Christ. When I say recalibrating on Christ, I mean, you understand what I'm talking about in, in calibrating. Uh, it's like synchronizing your watches, if you're going to be on a mission with an, a group of people, you want to be make sure that you're to the second, that you know what time it is. Or um, lately, I've been uh, needing to uh, to get on the on the scale after the holidays a little bit. Well, that thing needs to be zeroed out. It's got to be calibrated correct, so that it's giving me a true weight, so that I know what that is. Um, the orchestra that we've heard so beautifully play over these past several weeks, as they've been giving us the Christmas music, you notice at the beginning, you hear that tone that starts and then it rises throughout because they are, they are calibrating on one another. They're, that somebody plays an A and everybody else plays an A so that they're all coordinated and together. Well, for us, we need that same type of calibration in our lives and our focus of calibration is on Christ. Our society is adrift. I think you'd agree. And there is a tendency for us to be blown around as well. There are challenges now. I've spoken with people in this room who have faced pressures at work and they wonder when they're going to be asked to do something that they cannot do as a follower of Jesus Christ, and when that will be the time that they receive their notice, uh, that they lose their job. There's a tendency for us, as we are interacting in such a world, to start to compromise. And that's the very thing that we cannot do. As our society is drifting in godless ways of thinking and acting, we're at risk of that same thing. We're prone to being worn down, and that can cause us to shift as well. Um, social media only makes it worse, right? They're out there for clicks. They want to get your attention. They want to disrupt your thinking. They're going to offer you falsehood. They want to make you discontented. They want to make you anxious. They want to make you envious of others. And it's needful for us to reorient to the truth so that we're standing on solid footing on the truth of Christ. And so in looking at Colossians, it's a good fit for that. Because in the letter to the Colossians, Paul wanted to protect the Colossians from the worldly philosophies, from things that were being taught, even in the church, that would erode their ability to stand firm. And you see, Paul, this is one of the prison epistles, as you probably know, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was in Rome. And he wrote to the Colossians because Epaphras, the pastor of the church, who was somebody who had come to salvation, probably under the ministry of Paul, perhaps in, Ephesians, in Ephesus, had come with concerns about the church that he was pastoring in Colossae. You see, they were facing false teaching about Christ and about salvation. 
things that would cause them to drift, and their minds were under attack. So Paul, in response, wrote a letter to counteract that attack. And he said that the remedy for false thinking is right thinking, and particularly thinking rightly about Christ. And he wanted to recalibrate their minds. And the the focus point of recalibration was Christ, the person and the work of Christ. And because of Paul's concern for the Colossae, we are beneficiaries of this letter for us, to encourage us and to help us to focus our minds on Christ. And we have this arguably the greatest treatise on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ for us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul is describing his ministry. He's focusing in on just distilling that. He's been talking about that for a little bit, and we'll read a little bit of a broader passage. But what he's describing is a God-empowered effort centered on preaching Christ as a source of salvation and as the basis for a stable and growing and maturing Christian life. And so we have here a Christ-validated and Christ-centered model of discipleship. Let me read, and I'll, uh, I'll back up starting in verse 24, Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let me just begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and especially for this letter that we have before us that came through the hand of Paul but is especially helpful for us now as we look at a world adrift, a society that would blow us and sway us. Lord, we do not want to be swayed. We do not want to be allowed to compromise. So we ask that you would by your spirit, help us to understand and to know and believe and trust this word from you, that we would be able to stand firm, that we would be able to be a beacon to others that are are looking to us in this world. Lord, I ask for your help this morning in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to focus in on Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Again, Paul here is explaining his philosophy of ministry. He's giving and endorsing, if you will, a model of ministry. And he says, we proclaim him. We here is Paul and others like Timothy and Epaphras. So he's he's speaking from that position of authority. But he's more than just explaining his procedure here. He's just not saying, this is what I do. He's got a further agenda here. Paul is expecting results. And in fact, he's writing to the church. You look at verse 2 of this chapter. He says it's to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. This is not simply, he's not simply writing to the leaders of the church. In fact, Epaphras is probably the pastor, and Epaphras is with him right now. So right now, they're, they're, they're standing there, um, by themselves and relieve, and they're receiving this as they're receiving this letter. It's to everybody that's in the church. Now, I, I hope to show you today that Paul is presenting a model of Christ-centered discipleship that goes beyond just what his model of ministry is. We're going to see in Colossians one, 
verse 28 and 29, that there are five features of a discipleship ministry that should make you embrace your God-empowered role in the church. Five elements of a Christ-centered discipleship that will help you stand firm. We'll see first the message of Christ-centered discipleship. And then the method, the mark, the manner, and the might of Christ-centered discipleship. The message, method, mark, manner, and might. Well, first we have the message of Christ-centered discipleship, and that message is focused on a person. Paul writes, we proclaim him. That is, we proclaim Christ. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And that really goes with proclaiming Christ. The the discipleship ministry that Christ gave to his apostles and to the church is this proclamation of Christ. Now, in Paul's ministry, and as we just read in verse 25, he says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. This was a ministry that was given to Paul from God so that, he says, I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. We've talked about what that mystery is recently in Steadfast. Anybody remember what the mystery is specifically? What's the mystery? Say again? Okay, yeah, Jews and Gentiles together, and particularly what was mysterious was that the, the Gentiles were, were going to be a part of, of the church, a part of this growth. And that's what he goes on to say, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Paul's... Paul's ministry is focused on Christ, and it came, it was given to him. It came from God. But Christ is the center. That's his focus point of Paul's ministry. It's focused on the work and person of Christ, the gospel. Paul knows that the best way to protect the minds is with the knowledge of Christ. And so he spends time writing about Christ, and we can see in verse 15 and following. Paul says, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul is presenting Christ, first of all, in relation to creation. And what's his relationship to creation? Well, he's the creator. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He created all things. And then moving from having created the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, authorities, all things. Additionally, he's also the head of the body, the church. So he's the head not only of creation, but he's the head of what? The new creation as well. And so this is in the context of Jesus Christ as the creator, both foundationally 
at the beginning of the known universe and spiritually within the church. Now, if we comprehend the supremacy, the superiority of Christ, you will not be tempted to put your hope in anything else. If you understand Christ's excellence, then you won't trade him for anything else, any of the world's pleasures or riches, the things that the world would sway us toward. If you meditate on him, you will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now, with regard to discipleship, we see three things that this message that Paul gives us does with regard to discipleship in Colossians. First, it saves. Second, it strengthens. And third, it protects. First, it saves. Look in verse 4 and following. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So Paul talks about this gospel, which has come to them in verse 6, just as it's gone through all the world. And he says something interesting, that it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And if you notice, there's an echo here. We've been talking about creation, and Jesus as the creator, and we have this echo to Genesis, this echo to the creation where God told the man and his wife to be fruitful and to multiply because they were made in the image of God and they were to spread the image throughout the world. And Paul is saying that is happening now, again, in a different way, that it is you are being fruitful and increasing because of the gospel. It's the gospel that's doing it. Because sin disrupted the ability of man to carry out that mandate, to fill the earth with the image. And the church, through Christ, is carrying out that ministry now. And so we have this entry point into discipleship is that the gospel saves, and this message about Christ saves, and that is what's going on with the Colossians. And Paul is confident in this gospel because he's seen what it does, and he's seen it in the Colossians. So that's exciting to him, and that's why he focuses so much on it. It's tested and proven. Well, in addition to saving, it strengthens. Look at verses 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit, there's that again, bearing fruit, in every good work, and increasing, increasing again, in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so it strengthens. We see that because of this message, Paul is calling on them to walk in a manner worthy of this message, worthy of the calling that they've received. The message has saved them, and the message is strengthening them. It's causing them to increase in the knowledge of God and strengthened with all power so that they will be steadfast and stable. And that's what Paul's trying to do, again, is to solidify the walk of these, these Christians so that they will not be swayed by the false gospel and the false teacher. And that's why Paul is focusing in on Christ as this focus, because he is the anchor for them. He's the one who can anchor their faith. Well, in addition to saving and to strengthening this gospel also protects, look in chapter 2, verse 3. Christ himself at the end of verse 2, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, Paul says, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. He wants them to focus in on Christ as a way of protecting them from these persuasive arguments. And they're hearing these these other Gospels, really. We don't know exactly what it is, but we have some clues as to what this false teaching is. There seem to be elements of of a proto-Gnosticism, which the Gnostics weren't around yet at this point, but there were some of the the beginning points of this, this strange uh, mystical religion, uh, worshipped angels, they saw a a difference in in the spiritual as good and earthly as evil and so forth. But also there was a mixture of, of, a, of a, Judas, a, um, a Jewish mysticism going on probably as well. And these things were, were persuading or confusing the Colossians. And that's what it is that he wants to protect them from. And that's why he says that he wants, uh, as, we, as I just read, that um, I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Uh, down in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to who? Christ. That's the focus, is Christ is what is going to protect from these philosophies, from these worldly ways of thinking. That's how, he's going, how he suggests that they are protected. And so we see this in this regard to discipleship, that this message saves, strengthens, and protects. Now, the Great Commission, which has been entrusted to the church, applies to you as well. I think you'd agree. If you have been saved by Christ, then you're obligated to make disciples as well. And so you are to be declaring the gospel. You need to be making known that all have sinned that all are condemned, estranged from God, and deserving of hell. And yet God has graciously provided a way through his Son, who is God, and that Jesus took the sin of those who trust in him and died in their place, that he rose and ascended and promises to return for those who are his. And so you need to have your mind filled with this message and saturated with this message so that you can testify accurately to this message. And you can do this at work, and you can do this in your community, in your neighborhood, and you can do this in your home, and you can do this at church as well. That's part of why we gather together, is to encourage one another with the gospel. So we have this message focused on the person of Jesus Christ. It's a Christ-centered message for Christ-centered discipleship. Well, next we have the method of a Christ-centered discipleship. Paul continues, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. There's two components to Paul's method that he mentions here, admonishing and teaching. Now, note the scope of this. He, He says he's admonishing every man and teaching Every man, and the purpose is for every man to be made complete. Three times he says every man. Now, believers are in view here because it's believers who are discipled. For Paul, every man was everyone under his ministry. Everyone whom God had made him, for for whom God had made him responsible. Even the Colossians, who are his spiritual grandchildren. He hasn't seen their face. He hasn't met them in person, and yet God has given him a heart for them such that he prays for them, that he pours himself out, he encourages them, he exhorts them. Likewise, all who God places in your way are your charge in that same way to to receive that care and and prayer and and so forth. Paul's a preacher. You might say, well, That's his job because he's a preacher. He's an apostle. 
why do I say that this extends to those who do not have that specific calling? Well, look at Colossians 3.16. I see an interesting thing here. Colossians 3.16. And it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, notice something. First of all, we're to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's that same message. We proclaim him. Second of all, it's to be with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So we have the same manner, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, back in Colossians 1.28. It's the same verbs. It's the same actions, admonishing and teaching with all wisdom. So Paul seems to be indicating here that this process, this method, is not simply for the apostle but it's also for each Christian. And notice also the context of that. It's as we did, we sang, right? We sang about Christ. All glory be to Christ alone. With wisdom teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, there's this corporate nature to this activity. It's to occur amongst the people of God as they gather. So, this is for you as well. So, first of all, we're going to look at admonishing. What Paul is meaning by admonishing here, primarily, this is corrective. And especially when it's alongside teaching, this word means correction. The, the word, the, the, the Greek word is nutheteo, and if you're familiar with some of the counseling movements, nuthetic counseling draws its name from that word, nutheteo. That's the word for admonishing. And Paul uses it in other places. For instance, in Romans 15, 14, Paul says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. This he's saying to, uh, to everybody that he's writing to at Romans, not just to leaders again. You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. So Paul has this expectation of this admonishment that's going. And it's not just one directional. It's not just the pastor admonishing the next guy down the line and then he admonishing another. It's this, this corporate interaction of admonishment that's to go on and a, a, um, a discipleship amongst one another, helping each other along, admonishing. Well, what would this look like? And clearly, it, it would include addressing outward sin. That's fairly obvious. But also, we should be addressing actions or words that are just inconsistent with the truth about Christ. How might we live or act or talk in a way that's inconsistent about Christ? I think if you examined yourself, you'd probably find that there are many ways that we just do this habitually. We have a tendency to express worry in a way that doesn't show that our trust and our hope is in Christ, or we worry about the world events or about our job or about our family. Having that anxiety and failure to trust in God is, may affect our ability to reflect Christ to our brothers in the world. So, and whatever, of course, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if we're acting that way, if your brother is acting that way, he needs gentle correction. He's thinking wrongly about Christ. He has slipped away. He, his, his calibration has come out of check. He's subtly placing the world in front of Christ. So admonishing includes acknowledging that concern, but pointing him to Christ, to trust in Christ, reminding him that nothing can separate us from Christ's love, reminding them that all treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ, 
that everything God brings into our life is for the purpose of making us more like Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the ruly. There's that word again. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. This tells us that there's discernment that needs to be taken because there's different activities for each of these categories, right? Now, they're not mutually exclusive categories. One person could fit into all of these categories. And if you're puzzled, I'd advise you to start with the last thing. Be patient with everyone. That one applies to everyone. So start by being patient. But it may be that your brother needs to be admonished. Because the way that he or she is thinking and speaking may be saying false things about Christ. It may also be that they need to be encouraged and that they need to be helped. So we need to keep that in mind as well. Well, in addition to admonishing, we also need to be willing to receive admonishment. This can take a little bit of preparation on our, on our behalf, I think. Most of us aren't all that excited about receiving admonishment. So I'd encourage you to pray about that, to pray that you would be willing to receive admonishment from a brother or a sister who may see something in you that maybe is not in alignment with we profess about Christ. Pray that you will humbly accept correction, even if you may not fully agree. You know, your brother doesn't know your heart, and that's true, but God does. And if you examine your heart, uh, most likely you're going to find something there that is worthy of admonishment. And use that as an opportunity to repent and to correct your activity. So admonishing is a two-way street. We admonish and we are admonished. So we're admonishing every man and teaching every man. Teaching is positive instruction. It's most often an authoritative proclamation, an orderly presentation of the truth. And that's most associated with pastors, with apostles. But as we've seen in the, in, as we read in 316, it's not exclusive to them, right? It's, it also extends this teaching role to all of us. So it applies to all of us, and alongside the Great Commission, it certainly applies to all of us in making disciples. It says in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this teaching is an equipping role. And one way that many of us are involved are in equipping, in equipping for of this type of teaching would be in the home, especially if you're a parent. If you're a parent, then you want to be equipping your children to deal with these winds that are going through our society. So teaching your children about Christ, what he's like, why it is that we worship him, how his excellence exceeds all else and prompts us to to look at the world events in a different way than those who don't have that faith. Why he's better than the latest gadget or why he's more valuable, even than physical health. That's less important than our devotion to Christ. Why we can trust him even when the world is going insane. It's a good opportunity at the dinner table or as you're thinking about what things that are going on in the world How is it that we view this differently in the world? How is it that Christ changes our perspective on the things that are going on around us in the world? That would be teaching, instructing your family, and preparing them to face these challenges in the world. Well, admonishing and teaching is to be done with all wisdom, and all here means an utmost, it's the it's a fullest sense of wisdom. It's the truest wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to understand and to act accordingly. It's practical knowledge. It's knowledge that produces right action. And Paul tells us where this wisdom resides. In Colossians 2.3, he says about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Christ is complete knowledge, complete wisdom. He is the, the one source that everything about him relates to knowledge and wisdom and is pure knowledge and wisdom. Well, applying Christ's wisdom takes discernment. And we mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 the need for discernment and admonishment. Well, Paul also advises in Colossians 4.5 in dealing with outsiders about how to apply wisdom. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So Paul is giving this sense that there's a discernment, a care, there's a patience that needs to come with this activity of expressing wisdom. You don't just charge in there and and start um, leading with things that are going to be initially insulting. That doesn't mean we back off when there are truths that need to be said. But it needs to be seasoned, it needs to be with grace so that you will know how to respond to each person. So Paul is saying that he admonishes every man and teaches every man with all wisdom. That's his method of Christ-centered discipleship that should be our method as well. So we have the message and we have the method. And third, we have the mark of a Christ-centered discipleship. Or we could say the purpose of a Christ-centered discipleship. This is the target. It's the goal. This is the end of discipleship. Where are we headed with this? And Paul says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The so that gives the purpose. We, so that we may present every man complete. Now, this word for complete can mean a few things. It can mean perfect, as in be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It can mean mature. And Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and he says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, among those who can comprehend the things spiritually that we are speaking of. It can also mean having reached some goal or conclusion. And this is the, the idea that Paul uses when he talks about his striving in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. That's the word for complete. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ Jesus laid hold of Paul for a purpose. And it's that purpose that is not yet complete, that Paul is striving for, that serves as his measure of this perfection, this maturity, this completeness that Paul is aiming toward. And so that's what he wants, that's what he wants to see for us as well. So this this understanding of complete has both a positional sense and a practical sense. So positionally, All believers are complete, mature. You have everything that you need in Christ for salvation. And Paul says that in Colossians 2.10. About Christ, he says, in him, you have been made complete. Yet practically, they had need of progress. And so he says in Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So there's need for progress. And it's this sense of a futureness to this completion that Paul has in our passage in in, uh, verse 128 where he says, present every man complete in Christ. We can see this idea uh, as we we look back up at Colossians verse, um, or chapter 1 verse 22 where Paul says, yet he has now reconciled you, Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, that would, be, um, the, that would be the positional sense there, that he has reconciled you, in order to present you before him 
holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he says that Christ has now reconciled you, but it's in order to present you. He wants to present, he wants, Christ is preparing to present you at the end his church, his bride, complete, perfect, flawless at the end of history when he comes again. And that's what Paul has in mind here in Colossians 1.28. So it's not in this life, but it's at Christ's coming. Paul uses this idea also in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians he said, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. In other words, Paul's reward for his efforts is the joy of seeing people complete in Christ at the coming of Christ. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he prays, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the sense of complete in Christ that Paul has here in 128 of Colossians. Now, since this is the goal of discipleship, it follows that there should be progress toward this goal. And that's what Paul wants to see. And when Paul is thinking about whether or not he's run in vain and whether his activity has been in vain, He's thinking about, am I seeing this progress? And as we consider whether our faith is true or whether it is vain, we should be seeing that progress as well. We should be seeing that growth. Now, it's for this end that Christ gave pastor teachers to the church. And Paul wrote about that in Ephesians chapter 4, where he said, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's the goal of discipleship. It's progress toward that goal of fullness of Christ, the fullness of Christ. That's the complete in Christ that Paul is talking about. So that's both the goal and it serves as the evidence of our discipleship. What Paul would call in Colossians 2.2, he calls the full assurance of understanding. It's this progress toward the goal that gives us this full assurance. That's a confidence that we all want, isn't it? We all want to be confident in our salvation. We all want to have that assurance. And the way to do that is to follow this model of Paul's, of Christ's, that is Christ-centered discipleship. So that's that we have the message of discipleship. We have the message or the method of discipleship. And we've talked about the mark of discipleship. And fourth, we have the manner of a Christ-centered discipleship. In verse 29, and Paul says, For this purpose I also labor, striving. This purpose is the mark that we just discussed, complete in Christ. That mark is the purpose. And it's for that purpose that he labors, striving. Now you can tell how much someone cares about something by how hard they are willing to work for and by what they are willing to give up in order to attain it. Now, Paul describes here just how important this goal was by how hard it is that he labors. Because Paul was convinced of this discipleship model. It had been given to him by Christ. He had seen it in action, and he saw it work, and he knew that it would work. And here he is in jail, and he is encouraged to reach out and to, to propagate this model. He's convinced of this model, and if he wasn't convinced of the model, then he wouldn't have faced the hardships that he faced. 
the beatings, the imprisonments, the long days, and the, the short nights that he faced. And you can read about those in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you can read about those in Acts chapters 13 through 28, the many things that he went through. And that shows us by how hard he labored and what he was willing to give up, that he was convinced that this was important, and he was convinced that it would work. So he labors. He engages in rigorous toil, hard work, that which tires and exhausts the body, the mind, the spirit. That's the type of labor that he engages in. And he does this, it says, by striving. This word means contending. It's a sports word. It's the idea of an athlete that has stripped away all unnecessary impedimenta, all things that would hold him back, any unnecessary entanglement to run his race. And he's straining forward with maximal exertion to that goal because the finish line is in sight. Well, in what activities does Paul labor? Well, he labors in preaching, as we've talked about. He labors in suffering, as we've mentioned. But I, I think the focus here is that he's laboring in prayer. Paul's in prison and praying is a large part of his ministry. Look in verse 3 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Or in verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. Or in 2.1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. In fact, Epaphras, in chapter 4, Paul mentions that Epaphras has the same attitude. In verse, uh, or chapter 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So Paul is laboring in prayer. And our response should be, first of all, to be thankful for our elders, for our leaders who labor for us in prayer, but also to pray ourselves and to be willing to labor in prayer. Whatever ministry Christ has given you, to do that with all your might. Serve one another tirelessly. We see in Paul the passion of a caring pastor as he models this manner of a Christ-centered discipleship, but that is not on his own strength that Paul does this. Paul says that it is in the might of Christ that he does this. So we have our fifth item is the might of a Christ-centered discipleship. Paul didn't attribute his effort to himself, and we should not either. He says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, Paul's very life was with Christ, was Christ living in him, as he famously said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul strove according to his power, according to the power of Christ. And this according to means in proportion to, in keeping with Christ's power. That is the power of the one who we mentioned who created the world and all things in 116. In whom all things hold together in 117. The head of the church and the resurrected Christ in 118 in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in 119, who reconciled sinners with his blood in 120. And this power is also available to you, believer. Paul prayed for the Colossians in 111, said that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now, how do you tap into this power? Well, it's the same way Paul did, by working hard by diligently and obediently obeying Christ in the giftedness that he gave you, you will not tap into it by sitting idle. You tap into the power by working hard. But how will, it, how will you experience it? What will it be like? Well, it will be like hard work. That's what it will feel like. It's not going to feel like you're just cruising along. It's going to be hard labor. 
And you'll recognize this power by what you see in other people, others serving together, and what you see in yourself, your willingness to serve, and your delight in doing that. You've been given immense power. You've been given everything that you need. Well, Peter described this power that's available to us in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And Paul's expectation was that his ministry would be the Colossians' ministry, that they would live in a manner worthy of the Lord. So in, in Colossians 2, 6 through 7, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And that is our goal, isn't it? We want to be built up in him. We want to be established in him, firmly rooted, so that we will not be um, brought into other, we will be not swayed, we will not be compromised. This, this completeness looks like what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 again. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's what the Colossians faced, and it's what we face, this deceptiveness and deceitful scheming, craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, that's admonishing and teaching one another, with all wisdom, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It only works if each part is working properly. And that's the role that each of us have. Well, that's what maturity looks like, and that's what we are to build one another up in. As we're calibrating on Christ, as we're, we create a, a sight picture for this new year, it should be something like a church that's individually and collectively so dedicated to discipleship and, and to becoming like Christ that each is proclaiming the message of Christ accurately, that each is using the proven method of admonishing and being admonished to be like Christ, seeking the mark of pre presenting every man complete in Christ, and taking up the manner of laboring hard and strenuously to serve one another according to his or her giftedness, so that all, might, all the might which comes from union with Christ that, that, we can, that gives us our assurance, and that's how we do it. That church that does that will stand firm in a decaying culture, and that church will be a healthy and fruitful church, and that church will be a joyful and thankful church regardless of circumstances. And so I encourage you this year to recalibrate on Christ as you make plans for this year and that you'll take on the Christ-given, Christ-authorized, Christ-centered role that he's given you in this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to look at your word and for what it teaches us to help us to recenter our minds on Christ Help that to be true throughout the year and not just at the end of the year or at the beginning of the year, that we would be fully allegiant to you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.